episode 9 of the European Football Show on the World Football Index. Um, I'm your host, Alan Feely, as always, coming to you from Lisbon, and I'm joined today by John Sullivan in Galway City and Jasmine Baba in Hessen, Germany. Uh, John, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Sufficiently caffeinated, so excited to get going. Fantastic. It's an essential thing on a Monday morning, isn't it? Like, uh, Jasmine, how are you in Germany? I am on a sugar high. I somehow managed to eat half a box of chocolates and a peanut butter and jam sandwich this morning. So <laughs> that's that's a good that sounds like a good combo though. You know, good way to start the, the week. Um, but I saw your your running stats. You hit 123k this month, was it? Uh, like yeah, month of February, 123k, and I started this morning with a 7k, which wasn't my longest, but it's a good good start to the month, I think. Fair play. I had a hundred k, but I was looking at your stats. I was like, mm, I need to up my game in March. I think you know, get up to uh, the Leon Goretzka standard of running. You could say, or the Sergio Canales in Spain. That man runs a lot. He's been on terrific form. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I guess we can start. You know, in the Champions League, uh, lots of games going on this week. Obviously, some interesting storylines. Um, starting should be in Spain but it's actually in, in Bucharest when Atletico Madrid lost 1-0 to Chelsea um, it was kind of a strange game interesting clash uh, what are your thoughts on it John first of all do you think that uh, Chelsea were a good value for their victory yeah absolutely um, I thought they were they, they looked quite enterprising going forward they were rarely enough threatened going the other way and uh, I think really though the story was how Simeone reverted to type quite a lot. They were very, very defensive and uh, I think they found it very hard to play out from the back. They were kind of hemmed in by Chelsea's press. They were really exposed, I think, for the lack of pace they had in that team. Baratama Lamar, I don't think really they had much pace at all and they were trapped into their own half for much of the game. And I thought eventually that it would be telling and eventually it was when uh, Olivier Giroud, who is... I think such an underrated player and has been so consistent for so many years, but never really seems to get the love, which is which is strange to me. Uh, scored a bit of an unorthodox goal um, with, a, with, a, with a strange, with a strangely long uh, VAR check to confirm it. But uh, I think Chelsea were full value for this. I wouldn't say the second leg and the result is a foregone conclusion, but it's really really advantage Chelsea going into that into that second tie. Yeah, it was a weird one because I think you know it was in the context of Atletico's kind of slump in form that Simeone wanted to switch to type as you said and kind of you know double down in their kind of original identity because that's not the way they've been playing at all in La Liga this season they're playing with three at the back much more kind of offensive uh, front foot style but you know the fact that they're missing Kieran Trippier at right wing back mean they had to play Marcus Llorente there instead and they lost his presence in the final third which is a big deal Um, and I don't know I just kind of felt like it was a strange game because Atletico weren't as bad as people made out. I thought. I thought in the first half, especially, they had moments where they broke quite cleverly and uh, could have done something maybe. But I agree that overall they were kind of overly defensive. But uh, I also think that Chelsea didn't really threaten that much. Like they didn't have that many goal-scoring opportunities, and the goal itself came from a mistake from Mario Hermoso. You know, the way the ball bounced. But Jasmine, for you, like obviously you know Giroud very, very well given his years at Arsenal. Like, were you kind of impressed by his goal and his performance in general? And do you think that he's underrated? Um, I think at his time at Arsenal, he was very underrated. And I think he's can be one of those more frustrating strikers where he needs around five, four or five shots on target to actually score a goal. And he's more likely to score 
the hard goals, the difficult goals, rather than the sitters all the time, which can make him quite frustrating. But um, with his time at Arsenal, he had a fantastic goal rate, and I'm not sure why at the time he wasn't rated in the way that he was. And I know we sold him and got rid so we could afford both Aubameyang and Lacazette, and I think selling him to get Aubameyang was ultimately the right decision, but I think if I you had given me a choice between Lacazette and Giroud, I would pick Giroud in my team every time. He fits this Chelsea team like a glove, and he has done consistently, and so it's no surprise for him to get such a wonderful goal away in a round of 16 tie against such difficult opponents. I mean, I think I remember seeing a few tweets at the time thinking uh, Simeone was playing a more attacking formation, but then when it actually came to play, it was um, his trusty defensive setup. But yeah, it's a fantastic result and they didn't even really trouble Chelsea and not even a shot on target. So yeah, the quality works every now and then and Giroud always can produce something out of nothing. They were very close to joining Everton at one point um, and then decided not to because his wife didn't want to move to Liverpool. <laughs> she wanted to stay in London. That's actually a true story. Um, it's one of the kind of, you know, near misses for Everton because he would have been a very good signing, I think. Um, elsewhere in the Champions League, John, you backed Lazio last week. They took a 4-1 beat <laughs> in the Bayern Munich. <laughs> um, just, did you watch this game? What did you think of it? I did preface that with saying uh, that I'm always wrong and uh, <laughs> exactly as it says in the tin. Yeah, I, I really thought that Lazio could have troubled Bayern's high defensive line with Chiro Immobile. But yeah, it didn't turn out like that. Um, a lot of the goals, in fairness, were kind of Lazio mistakes, but like you don't give Bayern a chance like that because they'll absolutely tear you to shreds. And uh, and so and so it happens. Lewandowski was obviously brilliant. Uh, this Musiala kid who's cho- chosen to play for Germany over England looks a really good prospect. I'll be interested to see how he develops over the years. Um, it's just another player that's gone from the English academy system. He was with Chelsea to uh, to Germany and is starting to thrive. I wonder will, will we see will we see more of that happen in, in the coming years? But uh, yeah, uh, that I got that's particularly wrong anyway. So I mean, uh, just just a disclaimer to never trust me about anything ever again. <laughs> uh, to be fair, I think it's very difficult to judge where leagues are. I think even in Spain, you saw that it's very hard to kind of you know uh, get a read on where a club in one division will do against a club in their division. You know, it's kind of. Not easy. But uh but Jasmine, for, from a Bayern perspective, what do you make of this game and also this young player, uh, Muncia? Um he seems very kind of eruda and intelligent as well as being a good footballer. Um and I, I read that uh Joshua Kimmich and uh, several other players were very much kind of, you know, uh, convincing him to choose Germany over England. Uh what do you think about his potential and also what do you make about Bayern's chances in the Champions League this season? Um I think it was in, in- for the tie, I think people were quite worried for Bayern when they first went into it. They didn't even manage to fill up their subs bench because of the whole, um, you know, uh, travelling to Qatar, Müller catching coronavirus, and they've had quite a few injury problems. So, I mean, if there was ever going to be a match where they may have lost or drawn, it would have been that Lazio one. But we were all pleasantly surprised to see the real quality of Bayern and... Of course, Musiala um, shined through uh, that goal. Now, I was having a bit of a debate here because 
at the time, Musiano didn't actually pledge his alliance alliance to Germany. So in um, articles, it would said uh, Musiala is the youngest English Champions League goal scorer, but now it says English and German. And I don't know which one he actually falls into. I'm going to say German now. Um, but he was the youngest one for either of those nationalities. But yeah, the kid is magic. I mean, you don't score Champions League goals at 17 unless you're in the knockout round, unless you're good and intelligent. And he has that kind of style of play which fits in. Um, And it it will be... The thing is, what I'm interested, not only for Musiala, just young talents in general, they're getting younger and younger. And that that we talk about Mbappe and Haaland, who are, what, 19, 20? And even though we saw, like, Messi be extremely good when he was 17, 18, we only had, like, one or two of those players at that age. Now we've got around five. And I wonder if their peak will come earlier. Will they stay this good all across? And But I tell you what, we've got a few really interesting years and being in the playing in the German national team is going to be good for him because we need that, um, Germany needs that kind of young generational talent to really pull and build around like a couple of key players like this. And it'll be interesting to see how he fits in the Bayern team that way as well. Um, but yeah, he the way, his movement on and off the ball, the way he plays within that Bayern team is fantastic. There's also a bit of a lack of you know attacking midfielders, you could say, in the German kind of national team in terms of young players coming through at the moment. So I guess it's kind of his arrival is very timely in that regard. Um, elsewhere, Atlanta lost one 0 to Real Madrid controversial uh, refereeing decision early in the game to send off Atlanta player reducing to 10 men and then Ferland Mendy got the winner kind of quite late on. Did you watch this game, John? And what did you make of it? I did. I was quite excited about this game beforehand because Atlanta are always such a good team to watch. Even even since they've lost Papu Gomez, they've kind of, their form has been kind of resuscitated a little bit in, uh, in Syria and they find themselves in the top four reckoning. But uh, I think that sending off was ridiculous and it kind of ruined the spectacle. Um, with ten men, with, with the full complement of eleven men, I think Atlanta could have really taken it to Madrid. But as it was, Madrid had that leg up, and then it finally told very late with a brilliant goal from Mendy. In fairness, but I think the decision was ridiculous because surely he wasn't the last man because someone was covering him behind. I thought, and it just it just ruined the spectacle. But you know, I mean. This is just par for the course this season. There's been some ridiculous refereeing decisions across all competitions. And that could be one of the most ruinous ones because I think really that puts the ball into Madrid's court. And with all their experience and with all their nows in this competition, they should see out the second leg and advance to the quarterfinals. But uh, Atalanta in last season's Champions League, in fairness, they didn't win any of their first three games in the group stage. They kept coming from the dead on their route to the semifinal and then or it was the quarterfinal, and it only took a it only took a very late PSG goal to knock them out. So maybe I shouldn't be so forlorn about their chances in the second leg, but certainly, yeah, the red card did ruin that as a spectacle, and I don't think it was a correct decision. Yeah, I agree. I think it definitely did ruin the game as a spectacle because you know when a team is down to ten men, they're always going to be on the back foot, and especially in a two-legged tie, it just kind of really alters the dynamic completely. But I thought Madrid were kind of you know. It was a typically Madrid performance, really. It reminded me of last kind of, you know, post-lockdown last season when they put together an incredible run in La Liga to win the league. They just kind of, you know, 
you know how to get things done sometimes and keep clean sheets while doing so. And I think key to that is the midfield tree of Casemiro, uh, Tony Cruz and Luka Madrid, who despite their advancing years are still phenomenal players and extremely fit players too. Um, very rarely miss action. They've started the last thir- 13 of the last 19 Real Madrid games together, which is quite a feat really given how injury hit other parts of the squad, namely Eden Hazard and the like, have been. Um, but Casemiro will miss a second leg because he picked up a booking in the first leg. So uh, they'd be without him. But it would definitely be interesting to see how that game works out in Valdebebas in Spanish capital. Um, but then also uh, Jasmine Bruce Mushingladbach lost 2-0 to Man City um, on their home turf. Uh, quite a routine win, it seemed, for City. Yeah, um, I think everything that Marco Rosa was saying in the press that... Um, City don't like it when they don't have the ball and um, other things in the build-up. He kind of went, we kind of expected him to go all out and attacking, but instead he played really conservative, almost like a relegation side to just limit his, uh, maybe his reputation and just to limit, like damage control, the result. So um, yeah, it was pretty easy for Man City to just kind of cut through that without any actual scary bits there was one moment where Gladbach had could have scored but I think they're just the way that they've been playing both in the league and in the Champions League recently just it was just going to be too easy for Sissy yeah and would you have much hope for them in the second leg it's a big order going to Etihad and trying to win that game I'm gonna say no (laughs) just um uh, I mean, I think the only good thing is that they now have to come out and we might actually see the play that everyone loves, Marco Rosa Gladbach, just the kind of chaotic comes out with goals and pace. Um, but yeah, he, he didn't really change much. He didn't even go with a more smarter conservative view against City in the first leg. So we can only see what he puts out in the second. It would be interesting for sure. Um, in the Europa League some interesting games too Arsenal beat Benfica 3-2 and Napoli beat Granada 2-1 but Granada actually qualified on the basis of their first leg victory in Andalusia it's the first time in the history they've actually played in European competition and they actually got to the last 16 uh, which is pretty impressive for a club the size of Granada a really big achievement for Diego Martinez who's built a very very strong team down there uh, and it's going to be interesting to see how they progress going forward they're playing mould in the last 16 uh, Manchester United drew no Real Sociedad but qualified on the virtue of their 4-0 victory in Spain in the last round and uh, Tottenham Hotspur beat Wolfsburg of 4-0 uh, Gareth Bale amongst the goals and he was also amongst the goals this weekend scoring a brace yesterday against Burnley uh, John for you what do you make of Europa League this season of you know uh, some of the kind of contenders who do you feel could be a good shout to go for farther in the competition I think Arsenal and Tottenham the two North London rivals have would have a, a good chance um, they've had their inconsistencies in the league but I think the way both teams are structured to be especially good on the counter-attack lends itself to continental knockout football so uh, I, I'd be quite confident that those two will be in the reckoning come semi-final times um, United, of course, have the firepower and the personnel to probably beat any of the other teams left in the competition. But I think drawing Milan is a is a very tough draw for them. I, I think Milan might win that. Um, there's Rangers, of course, as well, who I like to keep an eye on because of Stephen Gerrard, just to see how they do. And 
they 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 progress and they'll face um who will they face again uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh hold on I will just put in. I think Villarreal will win it because Emery likes the Europa League. Well, you, <laughs> and he's not oh, good at anything else. Javier <laughs> yeah, Prat, who of course beat Leicester over two legs, which was uh, which which is a great result for them, and by all accounts, they were very deserving of that. So uh, I think all the British clubs are kind of quite well set to go decently far, but I think I think it'll be maybe either Arsenal or Spurs that might win the thing, and that. That would be a great fill-up for either coach, um, especially Mourinho, because I think he might need to win something to keep his job, given how how poor they've been in the league at stages. Yeah, true, 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 true. And for you, Jasmine, like you mentioned, Unai Emery, uh, yeah. and they did qualify for the last sixteen also. Uh, but virtue their defeat of uh, Salzburg over both legs, they won two one um, and two nil. Uh, what do you make of? You know the job Emery is doing at uh, Villarreal. I know you. I saw you that. I saw that you um, had some comments about his XG today on Twitter. <laughs> I think the man, a bit like Brighton and Hove, just breaks all XG models. And um, I, 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 I don't like Unai Emery. Anyone who's followed me has read my work knows how much I don't really like what he stands for, what he does for football, or any of that. But in the Europa League, he just gets into this different gear and his La Liga form has been woeful recently, which means he's going to throw everything in trying to win with Villarreal in the Europa League now, um, which, you know, they, they don't have a terrible squad um, and they're still, they're still performing at some sort of level, whether he crashes further in the league and gets fired before he can prove in the Europa League, that's a different story. Um, and on the the maybe Arsenal winning the Europa League, I I do not have the, the I do not have a healthy heart to go along with that and to see if they do if they do because they've got Olympiacos again. Sorry, I just can't see Arsenal winning it just because I. I'm sick of Olympiacos. I'm sick of careers <laughs> now. Just we've met them so many times. Like I just can't. I can't do it anymore. It's weird how those games are torn up, isn't it? The kind of constant European ties you feel you've seen a million times before. It's strange. It's only Arsenal that gets the repetitive ones. It's Bayern, <laughs> Dortmund, and Olympiacos, and only those three. <laughs> Yeah, and then a word on Emery as well. It's weird because um, their form is so poor in La Liga and like going into the Europa League round, uh, this round, a lot of people say we're kind of fearful for how they do because of how bad their form is compared to Granada and Real Sociedad who are in a slightly better form. Although not in great form must be said as well. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, the word from Villarreal is very much that their owners and the kind of club in general are putting the energy into winning a trophy this season as opposed to uh, success in the league so their priority is very much on a Europa League run that's why Emery was signed to, to bring a Europa League title to the club that's what they really want um, because Villarreal are actually a very very small club in Spanish football and if you look at their honours in the past it's actually quite minuscule and it's only recently in the last 20-30 years they've actually become kind of a significant presence in the Spanish game so yeah it should be interesting if that works uh, out and whether they can kind of balance uh, their La Liga form and not fall too much further because Real Betis did uh, overtake them 
uh, during the weekend. But uh, yeah, should be interesting. And then I guess in the Premier League, there's some interesting games too. Uh, City kind of followed up from their defeat of Mönchengladbach in Germany with the 2-1 defeat of uh, David Moyes' inform West Ham United. Uh, John, for you, what was this game like and how strong are Man City? They are now uh, have won 20 games in a row, 27 games unbeaten. Uh, they're kind of very much in the record books for you know all-time consecutive runs, not that far away from be- being the kind of winningest team in history. Uh, Ruben Diaz and John Stones both scored for City at the weekend. Why would you make this game? I actually thought that West Ham were the better team and they should have won. And that's reflected by the XG. They had a, a plus two XG. So um, they they probably, they well, not probably, they should have won this game. But I think City had that resilience to them now that maybe they lacked last season. You know, they, they, they won despite not playing very well. But I would say as well, like the reason that they didn't play very well, it was that it was an early Saturday kickoff after playing away in Germany are playing away to a German team rather on Wednesday night. So, I mean, I guess they were never going to set the world alight, but they just have this backbone to them now. That's really, I think it's personified by Ruben Diaz. The way the way he attacked that header for Kevin De Bruyne was, was brilliant. And uh, I think, yeah, there's just a real solidity and rigidity to them now that I kind of doubted that they would have because, you know, We've seen this quite a lot, where they've they've splashed out in defenders and it hasn't worked. But finally, you know, they've landed on they've landed on one in Ruben Diaz, and he's really been a massive factor in this in this run they're on. And I wouldn't I wouldn't bet against them breaking these kind of records. But West Ham, I thought, equally were excellent. They look very potent on the counter attack, and they should have scored way more than once. But I mean, that that's what happens when you play teams of the caliber of Man City. They have players like Kevin De Bruyne who can just pull a rabbit out of a hat and produce an unbelievable assist for a goal for Diaz like that. So I think West Ham are really, David Moyes is playing with house money. He's overachieved massively. And I don't think we should be too harsh on them, especially considering that they were probably the better team in this game. The De Bruyne assist was something else, wasn't it? Just coming in his left foot, playing that ball so effortlessly. This is like... His kind of aesthetic way of doing things is very, very pleasing to the eye, isn't it? Like, and it's just his 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 skill set is so complete. Like, Jasmine, do you think you know is he the best player in England? Oh, me trying to think of any other players. Okay, um, probably best and most consistent. Um, I would go for. Um, I would say I, I'm not being biased when I say Bukayo Saka is the second phrase <laughs> but like I think it's also what you t- what you um define as best because you've got so many players who are literally pushing their teams further forward than anyone else and I would say Bakayo Saka has a greater job to do at Arsenal than De Bruyne at City um and then you've got like the Bruno Fernandes to being at United. Like he's been an outstanding signing for them. So um, or, or Suchek for West Ham. There's so many you could argue are the best for their team at the moment. And it, it honestly defines what you, uh, depends on what you define as best in the league. It's an interesting point actually, because I watched the Pele documentary during the week and um 
he kind of was asked at one point when he was younger, you know, are you the best player in the world? And he said, you know, well, who's the best player in the world? And he said, it depends on what position you're talking about. Like the best striker in the world isn't the best defender in the world, who isn't the best goalkeeper in the world, who isn't the best winger in the world. Mm-hmm. Like he's kind of, his point was that football is a specialized game. But I guess the reason I was thinking about De Bruyne is because I feel like if you took any player and put him in every position on a pitch, he'd be the best at it, you know, just because of his skill set is so complete in many ways. Like it's kind of, I don't know. I just, I feel like he's right footed, left footed. He's, he can read the game well. He can, he can break down attacks. He can start attacks. He can finish attacks. He can take set pieces. He just seems to be a very, very strong player. But, uh, but I guess another interesting game at the weekend was Chelsea United. And uh, I know you have a few thoughts on this, uh, Jasmine, you're a very good tactical piece. Um, uh, after it, uh, what, what were your thoughts on the game, and how do you find uh, these two teams, kind of both pretenders to the throne? You could say maybe for that cohort of teams below Manchester City in the table, fighting for the top four place. Uh, what's your reading? Of? I think uh, it was a dire match. I'm not going to sugarcoat it for everyone. Even me, tactically analyzing it was a bit of a slog to get through. Um, What I was surprised was the intensity Manchester United threw at Chelsea, especially in the first half. But I think there's a reason why there's been a a big percentage of um, nil-nil games within the top six. And I think last night was kind of shone a light on it a bit. Chelsea obviously played, both teams obviously played at midweek. you know, there's rotations, you're not going to be the best all the time. You don't win, you don't get into the Champions League, you don't win titles from wins against the top all the time. It's the majority that you win. If you win home and away, the majority of the bottom half of the table, the likeliness is you're going to get into the Champions League. So there's nothing to be really be drawn from the match. I mean, I think Man United, and and this is where it shows the struggles of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, that he doesn't have any real tactical basis to him and instead just through high intensity, hoping it would pay off. And in the end, if you looked at um, the statistics, I'm not sure about the XG, but the other baseline statistics, Chelsea were actually better. Um, a lot of people will say, oh, but it will come down to the penalty. It's like, you didn't know if you were going to score that penalty. You don't know all of these things that come off afterwards. And it's the thing is, Manchester United are stagnant. They're, they are not going to improve any better with the manager that they've got. And um, that and it, it doesn't really change much. You can complain about the... Oh, it was just, I think what I'm most angry at was Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's um, post-match interview, which we all we all found really bizarre. Um, and what what's come out on top of that, the things he was um, saying. First of all, referees don't go on club websites to gain narrative. They don't have the time. Who ha- I don't have the time to go on my own my own club website to. Even if they're cheeky websites? Even if they are cheeky websites, like which the phrasing, absolutely brilliant. Um, but you know, on top of that, um, it's come out that um, Harry Maguire told 
um, Manchester United officials, like Luke Shaw, misheard the conversation that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer even put in front of everyone. Now, if that was another team accusing referees of bias or any foul play like that, they would be fined and or banned. So um, for Manchester United and Harry Maguire say, now to come out to say, no, Luke Shaw misheard it, that isn't right, what was said, um, kind of shows a lot about what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is doing. Instead of worrying about cheeky websites and what people have said to the referee or not, focus on your damn team and improve them. <laughs> Like, it's really, it, it's it's a bit like those um, interviews we see with managers who are under pressure that hit out at journalists. It felt a bit like that. Yeah, it reminded me a bit of, you know, I think Ole's situation at United is quite similar to Koeman's situation at Barcelona in that, you know, both are, you know, capable men, isn't they're not incompetent, like, and, and they're clout within the club that they earn as a player gives them a certain standing within the club and they're very well positioned to kind of see the clubs through a difficult time in their history and leave the clubs in a better position than when they found the club. But I, I don't think either of them will ever build a strong team within those clubs, if that makes sense. I don't think Ole or Cumin will ever win La Liga or the Champions League or the Premier League uh, by the merit of a team they've built. I think they're, they're merely a stopgap really for the next guy to come in in my opinion. And I think United probably have dawdled a bit too long on, uh, on bringing in somebody. I think they're writing, a lot of their kind of good form is writing in Bruno Fernandes, you know. Um, and John, for you, what do you make of this game? What, what do you make about Chelsea and United respectively? Oh, it was, it was an absolute snorefest. I mean, <laughs> you could use that in lieu of a Xanax or something to really kind of bring you down <laughs> and and I help you to go to sleep. Uh, it's been typical of of United top six game this season. They're yet to beat anyone in the top six. Uh, they five nil all draws. They've won six one defeat to Spurs. Of course, that 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 can be seen through the lens of their early red card. And that was the only game where Bruno Fernandez has scored or assists against a top six team, and it was a penalty. So I think it really just illustrates how much their play runs through that one player. And like Jasmine says, their real lack of tactical identity. Like it's. Uh, it's uh, it's obviously working to to a big degree because Bruno was so good, but I mean it's not the way to win a title or to win trophies. I I kind of liken it to Liverpool in two thousand and thirteen and fourteen. Okay, it was more than just Suarez, but it was mainly Suarez, and uh, you won't win anything with that approach. There needs to be a more balanced kind of way of playing, and there needs to be more weaponry who can regularly step up and contribute goals and assists, and uh, that hasn't been the case for them. Uh, it reminds me of some of those dour draws you would have seen in the mid-2000s, like a Liverpool with Benitez against a Chelsea with Mourinho, where it would be two banks of 4-4-2 absolutely stinking up the place on a Sunday afternoon. And if, if there was a goal, it would have been like a deflected header from William Gallas and Ricardo Cavallo would have knocked it in with his arse on the goal line. <laughs> that would have been it. So uh, it, it it was a it was a real it was a really kind of poor spectacle. But I guess Chelsea, strangely enough, I think might be oddly pleased with it because uh, it, it's it's another big game out of the way for them. We've seen how efficient they are at beating the smaller teams, and like Jasmine said earlier, like usually that's the recipe to get to top four. I mean, Arsenal under Wenger done that for years. They would smoke the teams from maybe the bottom half 
And then they would kind of routinely not do great in top six games, but it would still be enough to get them into the Champions League. So I think it's probably, even though they're at home, a better result for Chelsea than it was for United. And then, of course, Chelsea go to Anfield on Thursday. So if they can get a result there, I think it would have been a great week for them. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I think when you have a crack, like in Spain, they call you know, the, the main guy crack. Like, and I think when you have a crack like Suarez or like Fernandez in their prime, kind of you know carrying a team, it masks a lot of flaws, you know. And I think that uh, when you take them out of the team for whatever reason, you kind of see what's really going on there. If that makes sense. Uh, Leicester lost three one to Arsenal. Jasmine, good result for Arsenal. It was a brilliant result. I was cracking jokes at the lineup, and I was like, "Willian, oh god, why?" And especially our away to Leicester, we haven't been the greatest in the last couple of years. I don't think from memory. Um, so it was. It, it was a fantastic and solid result. I'm I'm still shocked that we even um, did so well. Um, I think that we were a little bit un- uh, less than we were a little bit unlucky. They obviously lined up with uh, Luke Thomas, who just Pepe took the mick out of him basically with his pace, and then unfortunately for Leicester, Harvey Barnes got injured, and I think if there was any type of player to try and get them back into it because Arsenal and Leeds are, are like not the best of friends. We concede Leeds constantly. Um, he would have been a player to get them back into it. They were still dangerous at times. Um, but yeah, it was a, a real showcase of Arsenal that can rotate sometimes. Um surprisingly looked good on the right despite Bellerin not being featured as well. And just, you know, reports emerged yesterday that uh, Juan Laporta, who is the favourite to win the Barcelona presidency, is interested in, uh, or has Mikel Arteta's name on a list to become potentially the next Barcelona coach. What do you make of that? Like for me personally, I did tweet back in October saying I think Arteta would be a good choice for Barcelona. I know that's open to ridicule. Um, because he's not exactly set the world light at Arsenal, but I just feel like his kind of profile, his background, his his kind of way of operating could really just flourish with Barcelona. If that makes sense, like, what are your thoughts on it? Like, I'm in two minds about it because I think at the moment at Barcelona, Charlie's probably going to be a poison chalice for a little while, especially with the kind of money problems, the messy situation, and God all else. Um, that being said, I probably could see him go because I think he would be a good manager to try and build something anew from there um, if you had to start a whole clean slate with talented players. But then I would say isn't he's, he's had enough drama for one year at Arsenal. Can he, maybe he just wants to settle at Arsenal for another year before going to another dramatic club with all of that Game of Thrones stuff that's going on there. Yeah, out of the kitchen into the fire, isn't it? Like, just this morning, reports emerging that uh, Josep Maria Bartomeu and several of his uh, team arrested over the Barca Gate scandal. Um, so, yeah, interesting times in Barcelona. Never a dull day in Catalonia, you could say. Uh, John, for you, Liverpool won 2-0 at Sheffield United. Uh, 
wearing quite a questionable kit, I got to say. I never get used to wearing, looking at that kit. Um, but a very good result for Liverpool kind of stopped the, uh, the rot, you could say. Yeah, absolutely. But just to go back to that uh, Barcelona point, it's just very telling of where they are in the world right now that they wouldn't go for Guardiola. Instead, they'd go for his uh, protégé in, uh, in Arteta. So that's just an interesting side point. Uh, as to Liverpool, yeah, that case is horrendous. I actually bought it for my nephew and then I felt really bad for doing it. I have two, so I bought them each. I bought them the home kit and I bought them the away kit and I kind of feel bad for the one that I bought the away kit for, but, you know, whatever he didn't seem to complain. Um, yeah, this was really nice because it was a non-dramatic, routine 2-0 win. There was very little in the way of heart palpitations apart from every time the ball went near Adrian and... Uh, he seemed to compound that feeling by when he got the ball in the second half, he started doing keepy uppies for some reason in his own box. And I was just waiting for someone to take the ball off him and score. But uh, yeah, Liverpool were very impressive. They played more like a 4-2-4 shape uh, with Trent Alexander-Arnold kind of moonlighted as nearly a, an additional centre midfielder. Um, I thought Mane looked sharper despite not scoring. And Curtis Jones, I think who's been one of the biggest positives of Liverpool's season. He looked... He looked like he was 20 years old because the problem with Curtis Jones this season is that he's nearly been too adaptable. He's come in and he's played that Jurgen Klopp midfield role to a T in that he's kind of quelled his attacking instinct and has been very tactically aware and very good at filling in for the fullbacks, which is great because that's what the doctor ordered. But at sometimes you're like, come on, you're you're a young player. Let's show show us the kind of attacking intent that saw you rise through the academy. And thankfully, he he uh, he showed it last night. He he was given kind of a free role, so he's popping up everywhere. You'd see him wide left, you'd see him wide right, you'd see him in the hole behind the strikers. So I thought I thought he was a real big positive to take away from that. I mean, Sheffield United are a dire team, but the way Liverpool season were going, you were just you were just waiting for them to slip up there, especially because there was kind of animosity between Klopp and Wilder uh, in earlier parts of the season, and the fact that Ray and Brewster plays for Sheffield United that he didn't come on in the end but uh, I think a nice 2-0 routine away victory was very good for the nerves of Liverpool fans because let me tell you we've been put through the absolute ringer in the last couple of months so uh, a nice sedate Sunday evening victory and I, I slept well <laughs> Yeah good of course Jones to dedicate the, the goal to Alisson's father as well to be fair to him and I think that uh, it's definitely a good point that players young players need to be kind of you know not pigeonhole, but put into a proper position because if they're too versatile, it can hamper the development. Like Tom Davies, for instance, an example of this, you know, now he's playing as number six under Ancelotti, learning the position, working with Alan and training every day. It improves him no end, whereas before he was being thrown as an attacking midfielder, as a central midfielder, as a sitting midfielder, as a box-to-box player, and you become a you know a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. And to succeed in the Premier League, especially as a young midfielder, you have to be quite proficient in one position, I think. you know, So it's definitely a good thing to be learning your trade, as it were. Um, Spurs beat Burnley 4-0 uh, Gareth Bale scored a brace after scoring during the week two uh, Jasmine I know you're not maybe Spurs' biggest fan but what did you make of this game like I thought you know Bale played very very well not just in the goals but also in you know his, his contribution to build up play uh, and everything um, so what did you make of the, the Gareth Bale revival I think I'm, I'm I'd like to talk in an non-biased view and I'm gonna take that route again and I think we have to be careful and especially with um Tottenham and Tottenham fans that this could the last two games against Burzberger AC and um Burnley 
is could be just paper over the cracks. Burnley are terrible. They, they, I don't know what has happened to them in the last couple of like their demise recently, but they were just normally they at least put up a fight and I saw no fight from them against Tottenham. And it's kind of those really easy games where you can get an out-of-form player and a player that has been criticised back into it. I saw loads of people fawning over Deli Alley against Wolfsburg at AC and I'm like, they're not even good in their own league. I'm not sure how they're still in the Europa League, their, their opponents that they faced. And despite this being wins that Tottenham needed, it it's just it shouldn't be something to be um overly excited about. Their next game is against um Fulham away in the in the league and that could be a, another sticky situation, especially with Fulham's recent form. Um they could easily turn that um momentum against Tottenham again it'd be interesting to see how they develop this season because now they're kind of you know that win does bring them up alongside Everton and Liverpool and that kind of you know cabal of teams just to sit the top four um so yeah it'd be interesting to see if they go and do it at Fulham because that's a challenging game as you mentioned um but for you John like what do you make of uh, Bale's performance do you reckon that he's kind of hitting form just in time for uh the European Championships at Wales Uh, and also Roy Keane and Jamie Redknapp had quite a savage debate uh pre-match about uh, the quality of international football it seems uh, Jamie got quite emotional um, what did what, you make of that as well? I, I'm so cynical in that I'm viewing Bale's uh, you know nascent good form in terms of the upcoming European Championships and him as per usual putting Wales first then golf then whoever his club is uh, in his list of priorities uh, yeah he was superb I mean Gareth Bale is a brilliant footballer it's just does Gareth Bale want to consistently be a brilliant footballer? I think that's what the question is. And I think for large parts of the last two years at club level, he hasn't really had that motivation to want to be the best version of himself. Maybe it's because he was getting paid so handsomely in Madrid and he was able to just play golf and, you know, live kind of a normal life as a footballer. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I think Burnley were abject. Um They've actually had a decent run of it lately, like relative to their start of the season, but they were absolutely torn to shreds here and it could have been much more than four. Uh, It was an unusually attacking system by uh, Jose Mourinho. He kind of nearly tried to shoehorn all of his attacking players, except Deli Ali, of course, who who seems to be the forgotten man apart from Europa League action, into the same 11 and it worked. Like I I have my reservations over whether he'd do that in a bigger game, but... uh, in this instance, it, it proved to be quite potent in terms of attack. Um, but yeah, it, it just seems like Bale is kind of priming himself for a run at the Euros. And I suppose if that's his motivation, then fair play to him. I kind of see him as the anti-Ryan Giggs, whereas he's a left-footed uh, winger who who has a real passion for playing for Wales, whereas the other left-footed winger kind of made up every excuse under the sun to not be involved with Wales, probably... With the, at the behest of Sir Alex Ferguson to prolong his club career. So it's an interesting contrast between the two. And as for Keane and Redknapp, I mean, <laughs> I don't think Redknapp would have been quite so loud and quite so aggressive were in person because I think Roy Keane has a scary aura. It kind of comes through the television. Um, they both made some reasonable points. I think Keane was a bit, was was very scathing. I mean, I think Spurs' squad, like player for player, is quite good and they should be much closer to the top four than where they are. 
But what I do agree with him in is that you can't use, oh, he's a capped international anymore as a player. Because as Keane said, and he'll know this from being the assistant manager in Ireland, and I think his, uh, I think his criticism of international football was kind of pointed as well. I think a lot of Irish players felt their ears burn when it was he was saying that. Um, you can't use international football as a gauge to measure a good footballer anymore because like, realistically, the pinnacle of football is the cup game. And international football is like a sideshow to that. And uh, to say, oh, he has X amount of caps for some country doesn't necessarily mean he's a good player. So I agree with him. I agree with him in that, in that instance. But it, it was just a hilarious back and forth. But And then they tried to get like Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank to like him. It's just like, like Roy Keane cares. <laughs> or like he would tone down what he was saying because Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank was there. Very much. Right, <laughs> but yeah, it was a hilarious back and over. But uh, I, I think they both made some good points. But largely, I'd agree with Keane more than Redknapp. Yeah, I think his exact words were: "If you trap a ball these days, you can become an international footballer," which is uh, doesn't say much for the Irish national team. But that's another story, I guess. Um, but yeah, and in Spain, there was some very, very interesting games too. Uh, Sevilla beat Asasuna two 0 on Monday night uh, to kind of really kind of get tongues wagging for their evening their weekend clash with Barcelona and Barcelona beat Alche 3-0 as well and then Barcelona beat Sevilla 2-0 uh, in Seville um, in a massive result really very big result in the title race it meant that they leaped frogged um, Real Madrid into second place to kind of put the pressure on Atletico Madrid um, Lionel Messi was superb uh, delivered an unbelievable uh, through ball um, for Usman Dembele's first goal uh, just a really really you know, good week for him, especially he scored two goals and an assist against Elche during the week. Um, and he just seems to really be informed. You know, he's got that kind of edge about him, that kind of, you know, tenacity to his game that maybe hasn't been seen so often this season. He's now on 19 goals for this season. He's a Pichichi's top scorer in the league, uh, overtaking Luis Suarez. And he's really kind of, you know, coming into good form. And uh, Barcelona face uh, Sevilla again on Wednesday night in the Copa del Rey semi-final uh, second leg after losing 2-0 in the first leg uh, so it'll be very interesting to see how that goes um, but there's certainly a title race in Spain um, Atletico Madrid beat Villarreal 2-0 last night uh, to kind of you know keep their place top of the table and kind of you know stem a bad run of form uh, so yeah interesting times in Spain for sure uh, John what do you make of all things La Liga at the moment? I think my main takeaway from this weekend in La Liga was how pleased I was with Joao Felix's celebration. I like that. A bit of anger, like a bit of like cursing into the ether and, you know, kind of <laughs> showing your passion in that way after that after that winner. But uh, I think it was really good for them to get back to winning ways and to kind of keep themselves at somewhat of an arm's length away from the chase, chasing pack in La Liga. Um, it's so funny how Unai Emery's kind of uh, Arsenal and Villarreal kind of runs as when he initially came in as manager uh, are similar because when he came in at Arsenal initially they had a 26 or 27 game unbeaten stretch yeah uh, and then, 22 I think but that might okay be, yeah. yeah some around but, yeah yeah a big unbeaten a uh, big unbeaten run but it was similar with uh, Villarreal this season I think they were unbeaten maybe up until like November and they had some they had a very good run but then they just tailed off spectacularly so it's funny how there's a kind of a kind of a link between those two runs of form uh, Real Madrid play tonight, obviously, so they can they can kind of claw back some of that lead. But uh, I, I think I still fancy Atletico to win it, but I wouldn't be as confident as what I would have been a, a couple of weeks ago. 
but that that is a big win, even despite even despite uh, Villarreal's poor run of form. It's a big away game to get off the slate and to get uh, to get three points in, and also uh, crucially to get a clean sheet in. So so that that was an excellent result for them. I was looking forward to the Sevilla and Barcelona game, and I thought that Sevilla, because given their given their good run domestically, would have really put it to them. But uh, it was an excellent performance by Barcelona. Messi again was just superb. You kind of just you, it. I saw you retweet something the other day. It's nearly like you notice the bad things he does as opposed to the good things because he's just set such a high standard that like it's just like standard. Yeah, Messi scored obviously. Yeah. Like you, you barely like muster praise for him anymore because it's just so powerful for the course for him. So, uh, but the, typically in Barcelona fashion this season, a good result on the pitch was followed by, you know, absolute scenes off the pitch. And now it'll be interesting to see how they react to it in their next game. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. From, from Sevilla's perspective, it was disappointing for sure, because I think, you know, after kind of building so well over the course of the season, uh, in contrast to other clubs like Real Sociedad and Villarreal, like I mean, Villarreal, like they did have a good run. You're correct in saying that, but they did lose quite heavily to Barcelona at the beginning of the season, and then rallied from that defeat to kind of put together a good run of games. Um, but while themselves and Real Sociedad were kind of you know the strong teams in the early months of the season, Sevilla were kind of building quietly behind the scenes, and then in recent weeks they've really kind of come to the fore and emerged as actually genuine title contenders of the team for a while. So then for them to lose to Dortmund in the manner in which they did and also get beaten by Barcelona in the manner in which they did, it's 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 quite disappointing for them as a club because I think it kind of maybe takes a knock at their own kind of self-perception. Um, but for me personally, I think the Sevilla's goal this season is to, you know, make the big three a big four. That's their that's what their ambition should be. Um, I think that they're missing quality in several positions. Like Ivan Rakitic is a good player, obviously. But he's getting on in years and he's aged quite badly. And I think that he can be very, very exposed when they're coming up against top opposition like Barcelona, for instance, or Borussia Dortmund. I also think that, you know, a key element to Sevilla's play is their physicality. And I think Kuman knew that before the game and made sure he set up his team with kind of a three-to-back system to really go at Sevilla toe-to-toe on a physical aspect. And once he negated that and kind of, you know, occupied space that prevented Sevilla from doing their thing and playing in the way they love to play, it kind of really almost stumped them. And I don't think Labategui responded in the way which he should have. So, yeah, I'd be interested to develop how they kind of react to that. I think the game against Barca on Wednesday is a massive game now. Copa del Rey, semi-final, second leg. Like, if Sevilla want to really kind of, you know, add several to the season... Uh, that's their best opportunity to do so, but you know Barcelona in this form, inspired by Lionel Messi, is a uh, is a uh, is quite the beast, you know. So it should be interesting to see how that goes for sure. And then Joao Felix is a good point. Yeah, he, he I think he was actually directing it at Renan Lodi, the Brazilian left back, who uh, who told him why he when he was coming on that he better score and better put in a good performance because it's about time. So I don't think he took too kindly to that, but uh, I think it was all in good fun. I think Joao was that kind of character. He's quite a combative guy. You know, he's quite proud of himself and that's a good attribute to have, I think, when you're a, a young man playing in such a competitive world. So, so yeah, interesting times in, in Spain, for instance. Uh, and then, of course, Barcelona's presidential election is coming soon, the 8th of March. Um, Juan Laporta, Tony Freixa and uh, Victor Font in the running for that. Um, so, yeah, interesting times ahead, definitely. Uh, Bayern Munich beat Köln 5-1 Jasmine I was in Cologne before it's a nice city uh, <laughs> but you, you were kind of quite you're not a huge fan of them are you Cologne 
No, I want them. <laughs> can I can I say biases on here? I'm, go- I'm not going to. I think anyone who follows me on Twitter again will know my thoughts on players and clubs. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Perfect. But 5-1, a good result for Byron. Uh, definitely, especially with um, the kind of dodgy form that win against Lazio and then to come back into the Bundesliga and just trash a smaller team is something I think they've been wanting to do and I think they'll be happy that they're not actually in the DFB Pokal which is being played this week because they've actually got a week's break for the first time in God knows how long. Um, Hansi Flick was saying that he's just glad to get back to a normal week for once. Um, but yeah, impressive display. Um, Lewandowski scoring a brace, which takes him up to 28 goals in the Bundesliga with 23 games played. There's been um, the return of Goretzka as well. Um, he started to come back after his COVID. It's it's hard to remember who has COVID and who has an injury right now, but I think he had COVID and it's just coming back into the squad, um, really balancing out the Bayern Munich team. They've really been missing him. And, I mean, he proved his worth against Kuhn on um, Saturday with three assists. So um, he, I think he is probably, apart from Lewandowski, I mean, we talk about Lewandowski, Müller. Müller's still suffering from COVID. Um, we have Serge Gnabry. Uh, and um, we talk about all of those fronted players in the Bayern Munich team, but uh, Goretzka gets missed a lot. And I think he's the most integral piece to this Bayern Munich team, apart from maybe Lewandowski. And to have him back after not having him for a bit while has shown <laughs> how good he is. Ralph Ragnick called him, um, I think, the best box-to-box player in the world. So, um, yeah. I think more needs to be made of how good Leon Goretzka is. He's undergone quite a physical transformation, hasn't he? He's kind of got really, really strong and, and fit and kind of put on a lot of muscle and stuff. And like, uh, what kind of profile of player do you think he is? And, and what makes him so important to this Bayern team? Do you think that he kind of almost embodies the team in many ways? I think he embodies it in a kind of quietly confident way, which... I think not many players can do. He's also a very good all-rounder. He just, I think he's one of those integral pieces. He's like a key to the team to get it working, um, to get all those individual qualities that they have in individual players who are absolute world-class talents to work together. And for a player to embody that, has to be one of the best in the world because the, I don't think any other player can do it quite like he can. And then just like another interesting thing I found was that uh, Lewandowski is kind of scoring all these goals still. Like he's r- remarkably consistent. And even during the week in the Champions League, he actually overtook Raul to go third in all time Champions League goals, uh, just behind obviously the, the you know the big two, um, Leo and Cristiano. But like, do you think that, you know, in all the talk and all the rhetoric about Erling Haaland and Kylian Mbappe kind of taking Cristiano and Leo's crowns, do you think that Lewandowski has been forgotten a little bit? Like, especially given that he wasn't a, uh, awarded the Ballon d'Or in a year that he undoubtedly should have done. I, I'm still furious at that decision. I think there was no reason to cancel the Ballon d'Or and he would have been 
uh, worthy, deserving, and a winner of it because he was a winner in the FIFA Best Awards. Um, I think, yes, I think because of Bayern Munich basically winning everything, which um, hasn't happened for, for any single team for quite a long time, to happen in the year of coronavirus kind of shadowed that a little bit. Um, if he keeps this um, form up and by Munich win the league again or the Champions League again, then I think there has to be him in the discussions, um, the same as Holland or Kylian Mbappe. Um, even along the Messi-Ronaldo conversations of last year and the year before I think Lewandowski should have been a part of those as well he is the striker that you want who can do everything and I'm slightly surprised that he gets um he doesn't get as much uh shout outs as he did as other people I guess his question on TikTok videos could have something to do with that <laughs> certainly affects my my view of him but uh another player who's kind of arguably underrated is Jaden Sancho I mean Bruce Dortmund beat Armina Belfield 3-0 at the weekends, and Sancho was the first person, sorry, the fastest person uh, in the Bundesliga history to hit 50 assists and the first one to do in 100 matches. So, like, do you think that Sancho is underrated because he plays in Germany as opposed to England? And, like, how good do you think he can be going forward? I mean, he's one of the best. I think there hasn't been so many discussions about him joining Man United for how much money if you're not good. And this kid, again, is good. German can hone English talents really well. I think I think there's a little bit of um, miscommunication or like misunderstanding when it comes to really talented players in the Bundesliga just because of the style of the Bundesliga. And I think it, people... I think he's been rated the, the right amount because if you put... Like we've seen with former players like um, Anin Yanizai and I think um, Reese James Oxford, I think I want to say his name was at West Ham. Um, you see these overrating articles about especially young English talents and, you know, they end up nowhere. And I think we're taking in Jaden Sancho the right amount. He's an exceptional talent and you don't break records if you're not but no one is overrating him at the moment and I think that's actually a good thing for him and anyone else in his position um so that transfer comes off and he moves to a less attacking flow league to see if he can really step up his game Leipzig beat Borussia Mönchengladbach 3-2 um, Julian Nagelsmann was wearing a, a jacket it seemed he wasn't wearing any of those outrageous suits maybe that's just something he saves for European nights <laughs> but yeah a really big result for Leipzig um, yep yeah, keeps the title race to two points um, they had to they showed champion quality uh, to go 2-0 down in the way that they did um, it was it was um, Gladbach's only two shots on target and the penalty that Upamecano stupidly gave away. He, he can be, he's a great talent as well. He's so defensively minded, but because of, he's just a little bit naive and can get a little bit too excited at times. 
to give um, sloppy fouls and penalties away sometimes. Um, and But it was real... In the end, it was all Leipzig. They went 2-0 down, came back 3-2, and we've still got a very exciting title challenge on our way. Definitely. And John, for you, what, what do you make of Leipzig? I know you're kind of a fan of how they do things. Yeah, I really in, in, enjoy their style of football. And I thought, I following this game on my goal app, I was like, oh, they're 2-0 down. That's going to be a big blow to a title challenge. But fair play to them. Uh, they managed to turn it around and get a 3-2 win. Uh, Sorloth, who could barely get into the Crystal Palace squad, don't mind team, ahead of Christian Benteke, uh, suddenly went to Turkey and revived his career. And now he's doing quite well in Germany. And uh, he scored the winner. So it, it's it's interesting to see how players' careers can turn around with like a different style of coaching and, and a different environment. But like nothing against Bayern. But I just hope for just my stake in being really interested in the league, because I really enjoy the Bundesliga, that it goes to the wire between Leipzig and and Bayern Munich. I mean, Leipzig, a lot of people don't like their model, the way the club is run in terms of what they are. But uh, I, I just hope they push Bayern until the very end and just, it, it'll be a nice spectacle because there's not going to be a title race in England. Uh, Syria, Inter will probably run away with it, I think. So, and then that just leaves Spain and Germany, really. Uh, France should be a good one too. So, uh, hopefully we see like really deep, long running title races in, in all of those countries just for interest sake, really. Absolutely, absolutely. And then Jasmine, finally, I guess, Stuttgart beat Schalke 5-1. Uh, Schalke haven't been relegated since 1988, but it's looking like they could be this season. Oh, God. Um, the Schalke, I think the biggest storyline of this weekend was actually the Schalke um, just drama. Uh, if anyone likes reality TV, just put on Schalke's games and them in the news and you have the feel for the year. Um, basically, before before their game against Stuttgart, who absolutely thrashed them, there was reports which were true that the players had basically gone to the sporting director and the board saying, you need to sack Christian Gross, their manager. Um, he basically <laughs> apparently talks in the wrong language. The, the players were not... Um, in the wrong language, like literally? Or... Yeah, apparently the wrong language, calls them the wrong names. Um, their, their coaching um, tactics were insufficient. All of these things. Um, there were reports like saying, how how dare you go to the board and want the manager sacked? But, um, you know watching the game against Stuttgart, they conceded the same goal three times, um, both like from set pieces, corners, in fact, um, and then the far post. Three times they did that, and that points to a lack of actually developed coaching. Um, and so after the match and reports of, you know, uh, just absolute screaming at halftime, full-time, non playing non-playing stuff uh, non-coaching staff getting involved the the quite a few personnel was sacked christian manager christian gross head of sport some others uh, around that kind of technical director roles and yeah they are definitely they're eight points they're nine points off like the relegation playoff so not exactly safety but safety for them but they're nine points off. Complete safety too. It really looks unlikely in the next 10, 11 games that they'll claw back, especially without a manager. Yeah, certainly. It's kind of a, 
a weird one, isn't it? Like it's such a kind of a big club, Shaka, a lovely stadium, kind of proud history. You know, a recent Champions League semi final run, but they're they're struggling so badly. And what do you reckon has happened in the last decade since that Champions League run? Although I know they already avoided relegation that same season, but why haven't Shaka kind of kicked on? And why have they become almost you know like Shaka? Oh four, they're really losing a lot of games. Four nil, it seems. It's um. It's been accumulation of problems. It's been treated, to put it bluntly, it's been treated, as um, Jonathan Harding said on Twitter, it's been treated like an old boys club for a little too long. Um, Schneider, um, the head of sport, sacked Tedesco, which was probably their greatest manager, and brought in uh, David Wagner, who for half a season looked to fit in and play good football. but then he started that very, very long run of no wins. And instead of taking the decision to sack him in the summer, have a new manager come in, work with the team, etc. Um, they sacked him two games into the new season. But after everyone was probably signed up with their club, so they couldn't really find a good manager. Um, Hyde Christian Baum, again, he didn't do very much with them much with them and then hired his friend um christian gross so schneider was leaving anyway in summer but they've taken the decision to sack him out earlier interesting 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 so that's pretty much it for our recap i guess um as you mentioned jasmine there's uh, cup games in germany and also in spain uh, during this week so more to come uh, Real Madrid are playing Real Sociedad this evening at Valdebebas and Everton are playing Southampton at Goodison Park uh, and I just want to finish off with this new thing I was thinking of uh, a kind of a moment of the week you could say of the seven days previous to the last podcast and I'll give you a bit of time to think about it both you and uh, John but for me mine was uh, when Lionel Messi scored uh, the second goal against Sevilla on Saturday he celebrated with Ilas uh, Moriba who's an 18-year-old midfielder um, who's just broken through in the first team of Barcelona. Uh, born in Guinea, uh, his mother's from Guinea and his father is from um, Liberia. Came to Spain quite young, worked his way up through the academy system at La Masia after being poached from Espanyol at about seven years old. And he's now broken into the first team. And he's actually earns uh, two million euros a year, uh, the highest paid player in La Masia because he's so highly touted and Man City, Juventus, uh, Bayern Munich and several other top clubs were actually very intent on signing him. So Barcelona gave him that wage to kind of keep him at the club. Um, but he boasted basically a picture of himself with Messi um, maybe 10 years ago or so, or slightly less than that. But uh, w- w- just as kind of a- on his phone, basically taking a picture of Messi at a barbecue or something like that, a club barbecue. And then he posted the same picture of him celebrating with Messi in a hug after assisting him for Messi's second goal in a crucial game. And it'll be interesting because uh, Pedri, who's another talented teenager, is actually injured uh, for Wednesday's uh, cup game against Sevilla. So there's a hole in midfield that Koeman needs to fill. Now, when Pedri got injured against Sevilla, he chose to bring on Moriba. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see whether he starts him on Wednesday evening against Sevilla because that's another massive game, of course. And uh, this guy is very, very talented. He's going to be a very, very good player. Similar in profile to Paul Pogba, you could say, in terms of he's almost kind of the complete midfielder in many ways. He can pass, he can run, he can dribble, he can shoot. So I'm interested in his progress for sure. Um, but for you, John, what's your moment of the weekend? 
I think it'll be hard to look past really Curtis Jones uh, dedicating the his goal he scored against Sheffield United to Allison's father. Just in case people don't know, uh, Allison's father, Liverpool's goalkeeper, he uh, he died last week in Brazil. He drowned um, in tragic circumstances. So I think just it, it was a nice moment because it, it must be such a hard time for him. He's obviously unable to go home to Brazil to grieve properly. And to, to lose your father like that must be just the most horrendous of circumstances. So I think it was a really nice moment. And I think it showed really the unity that's, that exists within the squad, despite them having, you know, a, a poor season. Uh, I, I was quite pleased that at 20 years old, he had kind of the wherewithal to do that and maybe the, the empathy as well. So uh, I'm glad that happened. Definitely. I agree completely. And for you, Jasmine? Um, I mean, you really felt was uh, newly relegated from the Bundesliga and I can't remember which player it was um, but before the match away at Dortmund they had a picture of him um, as a born boy at um, Signer Iduna Park, Dortmund's um, Dortmund's uh, ground and he played against them on Saturday. I mean they lost 3-0 and their manager's probably gone but it was a nice moment for him. I can't remember what player it was, though. It, his name has escaped my mind. Did he give away a penalty too, did he? I think. The blonde, a blonde player. Yeah, yeah, he did. I just completely forgot. What a, what a way to come back to uh, Dortmund. Then. Yeah. But yeah, oh, oh well, football. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, a very good week of football. Lots of football, as we know, at the moment. And there's more to come this week. And uh, we'll see you back here next Monday, uh, Monday evening, uh, for our next recap. Uh, but that's all from us. Uh, John, where can people find you? And uh, what kind of projects you have in the pipeline you want to share with us? You can find me at NotoriousJOS on Twitter if you're a glutton for punishment. And uh, the next thing I'm going to write, I think I'm going to start after this, is I'm going to write maybe a hypothetical piece about what Liverpool might do in the summer transfer window. I think we saw last night that they played Mohamed Salah very wide in the build-up, and I was thinking that they could sign a natural winger to play that role, and that would allow Trent Alexander-Arnold to play more infield in future. So I'm going to write something about that. Sounds good for Anfield Index, is it? That's right, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. Thank you, Jasmine. Um, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Jasmine Barber. I have no idea what I'm going to tactically analyse. Hopefully a more exciting game for Spielverlagerang or my medium, which is on my Twitter bio. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And for me, you can get me at Azuafili on Twitter. Um, I have an article coming soon. Basically, uh, kind of an interview with this top Jamaican surfer, Eva Wilmo, about his life and his... Uh, relationship with you know surfing and music and all that kind of thing and then also um, a piece from looking at the cultural breakdown of uh, Andalusian football in Granada and also Malaga so that should be interesting so keep an eye for those um, but yeah thanks for joining us guys and uh, we'll see you next week